This is the big question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm your host, Pastor Mark, and in this episode, we have questions from Noah, Caleb, Sam, Lydia, and Sam. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Today we have great questions from Noah and Caleb about the psalms that we sing in church and about what happens to your soul when you die. Noah asks, how many psalm refrains were written for our church in total, and who were they written by? Well, the book of Psalms is often called the songbook of the Bible because so much of it was written to be sung aloud, either in private or in public worship. Now, sadly, the Psalms are not used as much in worship today as they should be. And to counteract that, at Grace, we always sing at least one psalm in our worship services. Now, one of the unique things about worship at Grace is the way we sing the Psalms. Instead of rephrasing the words of Scripture to rhyme, like English poetry does, or or our song lyrics, we use the actual text of the psalm. So we set a line or two to music, and we sing that as a repeating refrain. And then a reader at the front of the sanctuary reads the psalm aloud in between those refrains. So the result is a beautiful, meditative use of the psalms in worship as they were meant to be used. Now, for us to do this, we've had to set many refrains to music ourselves, and that's what Noah is asking about here. How many psalms have we set to music so far, and which musician wrote the music to those refrains? So to begin with, in the book of Psalms, there are 150 psalms in total. Now, so far, we have adapted 26 of them ourselves. That means that we still have 124 psalms to go before we finish with the entire book of Psalms. So, let's take a look at who composed the music for each of the psalm refrains that we sing. So, the music for 15 of the psalm refrains that we have was composed by Natalie Campbell. Now, Natalie did Psalm 5, 34, 37, 46, 57, 62, 66, 67, 103, 115, 126, 136, 139, 143, and 146. Now, five of the psalm refrains that we sing were composed by Bethany Van Ralty, and one of those she had help from Noah Van Ralty on. Now, these include Psalm 4, 8, 30, 104, and 145. Three of our psalm refrains were composed by Cameron Brooks, including Psalm 31, 40, and 125. Patrick McGowan composed one for Psalm 75. And I did one, too, for Psalm 112. Well, that answers your question, Noah. My question for all of you is this. Uh, which of the psalms that we sing in church is your favorite? And do you find that having the refrain set to music makes them easier to remember? Our second serious question comes from Caleb, who asks, Where did Jesus' soul go when he died? 
Now, Caleb, this is a question that I talked about extensively in an earlier episode. In episode 11, which came out on Easter this year, uh, the title of that episode was, Did Jesus Go to Hell? And that's where I discussed what happened to Jesus after he died. Now, if you go back and listen to that episode again, you'll find that the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened to Jesus' soul between his death and resurrection. And there is a tradition in the church that Jesus went to the underworld and freed the captives there. And people who believe that say that the phrase, he descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed, is referring to that event. But there's a lot of disagreement about whether this tradition reflects any reality. And and the Bible does not clearly teach this. There is one thing that we do know, however. After Jesus died, his spirit was separated for a time from his flesh. That's what happens to us, too, when we die. When we die, our spirits leave our bodies. They go to be with the Lord. Now, Jesus' spirit didn't remain separated from his body. When Jesus was raised from the dead at the resurrection, his spirit and his body were reunited. And that's what happens to us, too, if we trust in Jesus. When we die, our spirits leave our bodies to be with the Lord until Jesus returns. Then the dead will be raised and our spirits will be reunited with our bodies. Even today, Jesus remains fully human. He has a spirit dwelling within his resurrected body, and he sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. And one day, if we have faith in him, we will be raised, body and soul, to live with him forever. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Sam, and it's a really important one, so listen closely. Sam asks, how do we know that our religion is the right one? Now we believe our religion is true, but people with other religions, or no religion at all, also believe that we're wrong and that they're right. Everybody believes that their religion is true. The question is, how do you know? The temptation, when everybody has an opinion and those opinions seem to conflict, is just to say, well, I guess everybody's wrong. Or maybe everybody's a little bit right. And we could say all religions are wrong because they don't agree with one another. Uh, Or maybe we could say everybody's a little bit right in the sense that they all have certain things in common and these things must be true because everybody says them despite all their other disagreements. Above all though, we just look at all the different belief systems and religions, all the different claims that this is right or that is right, and we have to ask ourselves, uh, is there some way to know? Is there some way that we can know that our religion is right, that our belief is true? The short answer, according to the Westminster Confession, is yes, but it's not the answer that you might be expecting. Before we dive into that answer, though, let's lay a foundation first. So think about it this way. 
If God has revealed himself in a book, then the right religion will be the religion that follows that book, God's Word, the Bible, the closest. So the simplest way to answer the question of how we know what religion is right is to ask what religion matches what the Bible, God's book, actually teaches. Now, our faith comes straight from the Bible, and it was refined during the period of the Reformation, which was a time when church leaders were really focused, above all, on being faithful to what the Scripture taught and not just passing down man-made tradition. So, faithfulness to Scripture is the key way to know that our faith is right. Another way to have confidence is in what I'm going to call the explanatory power of our faith. Now, what I mean is, when you accept the Reformed Christian faith as true, the world around you, and especially human behavior, starts making sense in a way that it didn't before. You know something's true when it starts making sense of the evidence all around you. And so this is a hallmark of the rightness of our faith. Of course, some people would argue, sure, your religion is faithful to what the Bible teaches, but how do you know that the Bible is right? Well, here's where the Westminster Confession comes in and gives us a fascinating answer to ponder. You'll find this in chapter 1, right at the beginning of the confession, which is the confession's teaching on the doctrine of Scripture, because for us, everything begins with the Bible. Now, this chapter includes a statement about why we believe that there's no greater authority than the Bible. Now, it starts off in an interesting way. Uh, First, it lists a bunch of reasons why people trust in the Bible. So it mentions the way that all the pieces of the Bible, all the different books, fit together, even though they were written over the course of thousands of years, and and God used so many different inspired authors to write them. Nevertheless, there's a unity, a coherence to them that testifies to the fact that they are God's Word. Also, the fact that the Bible contains all of these prophecies that were made thousands of years earlier and then are perfectly fulfilled, this also testifies to the truth and reliability of the Bible. Even the beauty of the Bible, the insight into reality that its teaching contains, testifies to the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible. But despite all of this and all of the other arguments like this that we can make, the confession says ultimately this, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of Scripture is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So, it's not through these arguments that we come to believe in the rightness of the Bible and of our faith, but rather it's through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Basically, Sin blinds us, and that means that no matter what evidence is presented, no matter how good the arguments are, they can never convince us of the truth unless the power of God testifies to it in our hearts. 
Now, this means that the only way to know that the Bible is right is for the Holy Spirit to work in you. And that if you know and have confidence in the truth of the Bible and the, the, the rightness of our faith, it's not because you're smarter than other people. It's not because you're better than other people or even that you're more deserving than anyone else. It's because the Spirit has worked in you. And as a result, we shouldn't be prideful. We should be humbled. Because the kind of knowledge we're talking about here, that the knowing that what God said is true and that our faith is real, that knowledge is a gift. It is something that we should be grateful for. And when we share the Bible with others, in addition to giving them arguments for why they should believe, we should also be praying that they too will receive this gift of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. Before we wrap up this episode, we have a couple of fun questions from Lydia and Sam. First, Lydia asks, which one is your favorite, art or word searches? Well, we have all sorts of fun things for young people at Grace to engage with during worship services, including the Youth Chronicle and our weekly word searches. In the Youth Chronicle, as you know, you have a spot where you can draw artwork inspired by something in the service. Just as there's also a spot where you can ask questions to Pastor Mark, which I answer in the big question. But we also have the word search. And in the word search, you have to try and find words from the sermon text that we're looking at during the service. Now, this is a lot of fun, but it's also really hard because the words can go backward or diagonal or even backwards and diagonal. Now, I have to admit, I do the word search a lot more than I draw a picture. Sometimes before the service, before I'm getting ready to preach, I'll just sit and do the word search and try to figure out how many of the words I can get. But I really like to see the pictures that you all draw, and so it's hard for me to choose a favorite. I do the word search more than I draw pictures, but I love to see the drawings that you make. So here's what I'm going to say. Since I sometimes have to give up on the word search because I can't find all the words, but I always enjoy seeing the artwork, I guess the artwork is my favorite. So this Sunday, whether you are able to find all the words in the word search or not, be sure to draw something fun so I can have some fun looking at what you've done. And now Sam asks, is it a sin to get candy if your dentist says not to? Oh, Sam, this is an important question because dentists are always standing between kids and candy. The simple answer to the question is, it depends. So the authority you have to worry about is not the authority of the dentist. It's the authority of the parents who brought you to the dentist. The dentist isn't the boss of you, but your parents are. So if your parents agree with the dentist, then yes, you should resist the temptation to eat that candy. Now, keep in mind that one of the problems of sin is how good things can be bad for us if we do bad things to get them, or we love them more than we should. Loving candy in moderation is fine. 
But if you love it so much that you steal candy or you eat too much of it or you lie about how many pieces you've had so you can have more, all of that is clearly sinful. So my advice is you should listen to your dentist and you should definitely listen to your parents. But obviously, we're not talking about peanut butter cups here because that's not really candy. That's nature's life-giving wonder food. But even then, you'd better check with your parents just in case. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.